0: Knees Media. It's absolute whole at the KCom where it's all going wrong for the Tigers. Meanwhile, home isn't where the points are in the Championship. Northampton rocks at Cheltenham's place to set up Exeter engagements and the inevitable Warnock mixing curl, crafton and crossman. And this is the Totally Football League Show brought to you by the letter C. C, C. The letter C. C, C.
1: The letter C.
2: The letter
1: C.
0: Here we are again, then, gang, converging virtually to talk EFL, the matches they're in, the consequences thereof, that kind of thing. We'll talk about those confounding cobblers and gutsy Grecians who gave us such thrilling League Two playoff games soon enough, plus all the big championship news. But first, who are we? I'm Matt Davis Adams, and with me are a pair of Football League experts. Firstly, please join me in saying hello to the director of a UK-based specialist consultancy firm providing independent expert assessment and forensic engineering investigation services for construction and property damage insurance losses and construction dispute claims. It's Sam Parkin. Good
3: morning. Good <laughs> yeah, afternoon. You weren't
0: expecting that, were you?
3: <laughs> Switched yeah, off. Yeah. Thought it was going to be Clarky.
0: Yeah, I know. I thought I'd try and catch you napping and it's worked. Um, alongside Sam two of his former EFL clubs may have been relegated this season in Southend and Stevenage but at least Arsenal are it's Adrian Clark <laughs>
4: <laughs> no, it's all going great isn't it for my former teams yeah <laughs> loving this season Right, coming
0: up, we're going to hear from a Crossman, a Crafton and a Curl. That's Keith Curl, the Northampton gaffer to you and me, of course. Uh, three seamen, aren't you lucky listener? Four including Clarkie, of course. Uh, before we look ahead to the upcoming games, let's have a brief chat about what went down championship-wise this past weekend. Um, Sam, worth reading much into the fact that there were only two home wins, Cardiff and Blackburn.
3: Do you think this is going to be a trend? It'll probably level itself out um, over the coming weeks, but I suppose it was like the first day of a new season, really. So there was a few... Strange results. I think just the the two away teams not to get points, Leeds and um, Bristol City, who who lost quite emphatically in the end at at Blackburn. So there was a lot of rust, uh, you know, in terms of the attacking play. That's been my biggest takeaway, even from the Premier League games that I've watched and and covered a couple. When you get into the final third, so many crosses over hit. No teams look particularly fluid, maybe apart from Brentford. Um, that I that I watched live in the last 15-20 minutes when they had some great rotation and built a little bit of momentum in the final third so it's going to take a while you know it's important not to get too carried away by some of the negative results you know especially at the top of the division with West Brom and and Leeds in particular toiling.
0: And the other consequence that we saw this weekend um, Adrian was late goals seven out of the 26 scored came in the last 10 minutes is that just a we call this an early season kind of thing. So lack of fitness leads to mistakes mentally and and
4: physical tiring later on, so you get more goals. It it always happens. The segment of a match where you see the most goals is the final 15 minutes plus injury time. But yeah, I think that will be a bit more pronounced in the early weeks. Yeah, the players won't be up to speed, will they, fitness-wise? And and that's got to be... Good news. It, it feels like, a, in a way, in the Premier League and the Championship, it's almost worth like just swerving the first half and just tuning in for yeah. from half-time onwards. It's, everything seems to get a little bit more entertaining. I'll tell you one player that wasn't rusty. Lewis Sibley. Wow, what a performance that was uh, for an 18-year-old with pretty much zero first-team experience. I thought, I thought his goals... Were glorious to watch his footwork, his balance, so sharp. That was really, really encouraging from from a derby point of view. And I know he's he's one of several excellent young players that Philip Koku has, has brought into the team this year. So uh, we all know I'm not not been Koku's biggest fan, but but you know, Bogle, who was already in the team, Bird. And Sibley and others, yeah, the future looks looks quite bright actually for for the Rams with these these good young players. Neither of the top
0: two won, Sam, but it's the playoff picture which is um, getting pretty interesting. Three points between Preston in sixth and Derby in twelfth. There's definitely at least one place in that pack of four for the playoffs open, and and somebody can pinch it between now and the end of the season. Might not be Preston who occupies it at the moment.
3: No, I'd be surprised if it's. Preston, I think we'll probably come on to them later, but I've always felt there may be a quality, reliable goal-getter short of forcing their way in. You know, as much as me and Clarkey have waxed lyrical about a number of their players, it's not been about the number nine, unfortunately, and that position changes too often uh, in my mind for them. Uh, I didn't really see Swansea and Cardiff amounting this type of challenge, but Clarkey just spoke about Sibley at Derby County. I just think... We're going to see a lot of the young players hitting their top form quicker than some of the more experienced players given the time they've had off. I'm talking about Brewster and and Gallagher at Swansea who were a bit quiet the first couple of games in tandem but have really uh, started to motor now so yeah they're right in the mix and and Cardiff really impressive performance um, against Leeds United obviously didn't have too many chances but very very good in front of goal when they got those glimmers so yeah, my bet of Bristol City, I think Clarkie went for Swansea latterly, but my shout of Bristol City is looking probably the most stupid thing I've said in recent times. <laughs> Although, he left Naki Wells, Afobi and Casey Palmer on the bench the other day and I looked at the quality of the bench. It's, you know, the squad's good now that Lee Johnson's put together. I thought a phobe in particular could be the difference. So, I'm not going to write them off completely, but mm. yeah, come on Bristol.
0: Right, we're going to continue our deep dive into the championship next. See, we're getting the hang of this athletic stuff. You're listening to the Totally Football League Show in association with William Hill. Plenty of championship headlines this week, including Borough go from Woody to Warnock, stylish Sabri sparks scenes of celebration at the city ground, brackets and my house, close brackets, as he signs on at Forest for two more years. Elsewhere, Birmingham's Bellingham bound for Borussia, question mark, and Hull's media team learn the importance of properly redacting emails. Let's go straight to the weekend's fixtures, because there's a new manager in town. Uh, well, not a new manager, a classic manager, a veteran manager, a manager who will surely be around forever.
5: yes
3: why did we have a referendum in the first bloody place?
6: I f- die for you, lot. F- die for you. In f- hell of fire. Look at the f- games we've tossed away. And to hell with the rest of the
4: world, hey? Eh?
0: We're talking about Neil Warnock, of course. His first task as Middlesbrough boss is to go to the Bet365 Stadium to take on Stoke City. This fixture now taking on a whole new meaning after Tuesday's announcement that Borough would like to place on record there. Thanks to Jonathan Woodgate for before wielding the axe. Neil Warnock, as we say, into replacing for his 18th different job in management. This will definitely be his last one, as the man himself said, in 2006, in 2012 and in 2019. Here to give us his thoughts on the new boss in charge of his club from BBC Radio 5 Live Sport. Were it not for Bob Mortimer and Chris Rear, he'd be Borough's most famous fan, is Steve Crossman. Uh, Steve, what was your reaction to the news? Firstly, that Woodgate had gone, and secondly, that that Warnock was his successor. Were you you disappointed, relieved, bit of both?
2: Firstly, you left out singer-songwriter Alistair Griffin, so (laughs)
0: let's
2: just get that right. right. (laughs) <laughs> so uh, I'm kind of torn. I'm not torn on Neil Warnock. I think that's a great appointment. But as far as Woody goes, ultimately, and you see a lot of this on social media, people be very excited that, that he's gone because Middlesbrough were were awful. But you've got to feel sorry for him because it's so clear to me, he has put his absolute heart and soul into that job. It's just not good enough. I think it's just out of his depth, to be totally honest. I think that's probably been pretty obvious to a lot of people for a while. And certainly there's an argument that Steve Gibson could have done this earlier. It feels a bit weird that, you know, you, you sort of left him in charge for for three months whilst there was no football. And then after one game, admittedly an awful game, he, he's he gone. But then again, one of the problems that Middlesbrough have had in the past is people say like, oh, it's a panic move. It is a panic move, but it better be a panic move. We should be panicking. If we're not panicking now, then we're sleepwalking toward relegation. And it's funny, on on, um, on my show last night, Rory Smith from the New York Times described Neil Warnock as a guilty pleasure. And I like that. And I share that guilty pleasure.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Definitely his inexperience was, was an issue. You saw that with the, the changeable tactics the different formations. When results didn't go his way, the, the sort of philosophy went with it, didn't it? Um, he, he was constantly searching. Do you know what I? I'm kind of getting that feeling with Steve Gibson, you know, who's who's lauded, isn't he, as as one of the best chairman, one of the one of the top men around, and I'm not disputing that. But when you look at who he's employed in recent years, that there is no real pattern. You have got Mowbray attacking, Karanka defensive, Monk in between, Pulis old long ball, and then Woodgate was the complete opposite, and and now you've gone to Neil Warner. I don't I don't know what the what the trend is there. Well,
2: the the trend has. Fairly often been giving coaches their first job in management, although not always. But he's done it with a huge number of managers: Brian Robson, uh, Karanka, Woodgate, Agnew, Southgate, McLaren. There's there's loads and loads of names who he's. I, he I think that that my sort of concern with Steve Gibson and the thing is, you know it's almost like a caveat sensational chairman would never, ever want him to leave the club, but that doesn't mean he's infallible. And that doesn't mean that, you know, you can't ever criticize what he's done. I think that Steve Gibson believes that he's got a nouse for, for picking a good manager because he has made several good selections in the past. I think the problem now is he's probably made more bad calls than good calls over the years. Cause that you, what you were saying is right about there's been, There hasn't been a great pattern in terms of the profile of the coach that's come in, and they tried to address that. So at the start of the season in that same press conference, Adrian Bevington was there talking about having this golden thread. So the idea was that Middlesbrough would become a a passing team, an attacking team, and that wouldn't change as managers changed over the years. That obviously hasn't worked. It was laudable to try it, and I hope that they try again, but maybe just make a better choice of head coach.
3: Steve, um, it's probably difficult to talk about too many bright spots on the pitch this season, but I think there has been an emergence of some of the academy graduates, some of the younger players. And um, I'm not suggesting they're going to get regular game time under Neil Warnock in the weeks ahead. That might be uh, wishful thinking. But are you pleased that you've seen some of the young players taken to the field? And who's impressed you out of the likes of Pears and Spence and, and Coulson? I could go on
2: yeah, Jed Spence is the one for me, and um again, that that's one of the the decisions which fans question Jonathan Woodgate about. and I should say, I get the feeling that something must have happened behind the scenes because as much as I would disagree with quite a lot of the selections that Jonathan Woodgate made, Spence was the the breakout player during January, which was this amazing month for middle Jonathan Woodgate was manager of the month in the championship. Which now seems absolutely crazy, but it was the emergence of Jed Spence that began that. And you know, he was terrific. He was particularly good against Tottenham in the two games in the FA Cup. And, and Jose Mourinho was gave him very high praise for his performances. Then, then Spence signed this new contract. Uh, for those that don't know, he's an attacking right back, right wing back. He signed that new contract, and then he disappeared, and we've only seen him in, in fits and starts since then. He was the the breakthrough player of the whole season. He's the one I'm most excited about.
0: Finally then, Steve, we know Neil Warnock's desperate to get to 1,500 matches as a manager. He can't do it in what remains of this season. He needs 12 more games to reach it and there there are eight left. Do you think that he will be pitching himself as the full-time candidate? And would you be happy were he in charge for next season too?
2: Yes, I would. But the problem we've got, and this is a problem that Jonathan Woodgate faces, you know, this year was the first year out of parachute payments. So suddenly your earnings, the amount of money you've got to spend, just goes through the floor. So that's made life more difficult for Jonathan Woodgate, but that won't change next season. So I'd love to see Neil win it back because I think that, I think he's different to Tony Pulis. Some people might kind of link them and say they're similar, but I think with Tony Pulis is, I think as a fan, he kind of rubbed me up the wrong way in his first press conference when he sort of walked into the press conference and stood up for the entirety of the time and and just did that for every press conference. And I don't know if that's the journalist in me, but I just think that kind of reinforces that sort of barrier between media and football club. And I just think Neil Warnock's a bit more entertaining. I think he's probably what Middlesbrough need at the minute. And it's just a break from what we've had. Like watching Middlesbrough this season has been a bit like watching... Um, A bit like watching Black Mirror in that every episode, every game is different to the last, but they're all really disturbing and you get the sense (laughs) that there is some sort of dark narrative running throughout, which is
0: the end in terror. Oh, dear. Well, look, we hope for your sake and for Middlesbrough's uh, that it doesn't. Thanks so much for your time today, Steve. Steve Crossman, superstar DJ there. Um, Chaps, I'm assuming none of us now think that Middlesbrough are going to get relegated. Sam, you you couldn't say the same about Stoke at the moment. This is just as important a game for them as it is for Borough.
3: Yeah, big game for for, for both. I I thought Stoke actually um, left with some credit from from the weekend. I think that was a good point um, at Reading. Just shows the... Added belief that Michael O'Neill brings to a to a squad. The, the changes made a big impact there. Uh, McLean and, and Vokes, I think it was, who kind of gave the impetus to go and get something from that that game. But yeah, it's going to be a tough game. It's going to be about what Neil Warnock can get done on the training ground in the first few days. I've had a little look this morning. Thought the three five two that Woodgate went with at, at times, that Steve just spoke about. Jed Spence, the right wing back. I don't think Neil Warnock. Will go for a three. I don't think he's he's done that at all, really, during his tenure at Cardiff most recently. So I think he'll go with a back four. There's plenty of options to go with two up front, but yeah, I think it'll be uh, a four-two-three-one or a four-three-three three set pieces. Um, obviously, an arm around the shoulder, of the lads on the training ground, making it fun again. Um, all the things you associate with Neil Warnock, but yeah, it's going to be interesting who's going to be the man to step up. They've got Ravel Morrison there. They've got. Roberts, Patrick Roberts, back fit, which is going to be the one that he's going to kind of mould the team around, i.e. Adel Taraptor. Have they got someone, or Tomlin, who can step up and be that one creative spark amongst uh, a load of chaps who are going to have to work hard and kick and punch and do all the things that Neil Warnock yeah, sides do? Yeah.
4: I think Wing is a player, a technical player, that can make things happen. I think he's someone that I would... Keeping the team, and and I think for he he likes mobile front men. I know he likes big men, but but he also likes pace. and And I think that if for Sombolonga feels re- rejuvenated by the by the new gaffer, that that could be a game changer. Because for me, if if he's on song and he's playing to his potential, he he's the first choice man, and actually the the one most likely to score, you know, ten between ten and twenty goals a season. He's just looked a little bit sort of fed up most of this this campaign of Sombolonga if they can get a tune out of him they should be fine
0: Meanwhile up at the top end of the table it's Leeds versus Fulham uh, Ajaz has been in touch like the rest of us he is asking stating one of the two Leeds surely not right what, what do you think Adrian was this just first match back rustiness or or, or is it happening again
4: well it's same old Leeds isn't it in terms of dominate a game completely control it but then at the top end of the pitch, a little bit blunt and and wasteful, so so not a lot's changed there. Apart from the fact that, that Fulham uh, that Leeds rather were on a on, on a more uh, a stronger role, weren't they prior to the break? Now I I don't see it being a terminal problem. I really don't. I think that that Pablo Hernandez coming back will, will add a little bit more penetration. I think I think they missed him quite badly. And and let's be honest, the two goals that they conceded were were major individual mistakes. Just so lapses in concentration inside their own half, giving the ball away and Cardiff to their credit. I mean, very ruthless, weren't they, in the way that they, they made the most of those opportunities. So no, for me, it probably should have been a goalless draw, at worst, for Leeds United. And then we'd we we wouldn't be asking those questions. So no, I think I think they'll be alright. But the same old issues arise. Are are they going to score enough goals to, to win matches. The The thing that's in their favour is that, do they need to win that many more matches to get automatic promotion? Because I, I think that the teams behind them will win some and lose some.
0: In terms of Fulham, Sam, last week, he said it's going to be interesting to see if Scott Parker's used this three months to, to sort out the deficiencies that, that were in his team. The evidence Saturday <laughs> suggests maybe not. And, and that was... A really damaging defeat for them, not because they lost to Brentford, who were, who were close to them in the table, but because West Brom and Leeds left the door ajar for them by not picking up maximum points themselves. And and, and Fulham didn't get any, so they weren't able to close the gap.
3: Yeah, I thought it was a, a pretty good game, first and foremost. I thought that the quality was, was better in the, the West London derby than a lot of the other games that I've, I've seen. But yeah, the same deficiencies in that not enough runners in behind. Again, the huge reliance on, you know, tossing balls in for for Mitrovic um, or at least going back to front at times and and hoping that they can work off his knockdowns. So, so yeah, I think against Leeds, where you'd expect Leeds to be very dominant with the ball, very proactive, they're going to have to have more of a threat on the counter-attack. And do they have that in them? Do they have someone who can stretch the game uh, when they're going to, you know, be second in terms of ball retention. It's um, it's a worry. All those things that Adrian spoke about last week about Scott Parker's team were were still evident. I felt that Brentford were just a little bit more cohesive, a little bit uh, more inventive in the final third, and part of that is is down to um, what old Michael Cox wrote about wrote about in the Athletic this week about the mobility of of Ollie Watkins in comparison to um, to Mitrovic. That's no slight on Mitrovic because of I think he's an outstanding centre-forward. But sometimes it's got to come from those midfield players running in behind and, and taking you know, the eye of the defenders. So they need to improve in that regard. And if they can, you know, there's still going to be pressure. There was always going to be pressure on Leeds if they didn't win one of these two games. So if they lose uh, to Fulham at home at the weekend, there's going to be enormous pressure building. Um, if they avoid defeat, I, I agree with Clarkey, they're going to have enough games to, to get themselves promoted.
4: What strikes me as odd, Sam and, and Matt, is that that he picked a really attacking team. He had Kearney and Dakova Reed in behind Mitrovic. He had two wingers uh, in Nkara and uh, Sabano, and and they yet yeah, they don't have, didn't have those those support runs or nowhere near enough for Mitrovic. It's, it seems simple to me. And I just, I, I do have one or two reservations about Scott Parker as a, as a coach. He's, he's obviously lacking experience. He's probably making mistakes on the job. So he's done, done, done well, I think to get Fulham into the, into this position, but I just I see a slight lack of dynamism and, and bravery from him as a coach. I want to see, I want to see, him making active choices and changes during games when when things aren't going brilliantly, and I, I don't see a lot of that. So so yeah, that might just hold Fulham back while he's in charge until until I guess he he learns
3: from learns from his mistakes.
0: Sam, you give Fulham any hope in this game?
3: I think that is going to take the better teams a little bit of time. Um, Fulham could certainly catch Leeds cold, and you know if we're sitting here talking about a squad that's got a flurry of attacking players and chaps that are full of goals, options at centre-forward, then, you know, we would be talking about a team that are going to canter to promotion. Leeds have had the same problem this season and last season. It's all about that first goal, it's getting that goal early. If they can get a couple of goals, you can see them really putting teams to the sword. But again, you know, not a great quality of chance. Uh, that they were able to create against Cardiff, and and, and same old story, possession stats through the roof, um, sixteen shots to seven, I think ten corners to two. But it doesn't matter, you know, if you can't put the ball in the net. So you have pressure again on on Patrick Bamford to deliver after probably his most indifferent performance of the season, I would say, for one reason or other, mainly because it was his um, his calf or his backside that stopped Harrison from getting on that. the sheet.
0: Great save. <laughs> Now, continuing the theme of massive matches this weekend, Preston versus Cardiff at Deepdale. Only goal difference separating these two playoff hopefuls. Varied results for them this past weekend. Preston drawing with Luton after being ahead. Cardiff earning the most eye-catching result of the weekend, beating Leeds. Um, Clarkey, I'm really impressed with, with Neil Harris, the, the way that he speaks, but the way that he sets his teams up as well. It can't have been an easy decision for him to leave Millwall. He went... Pretty much straight back into it, and he's really hit the ground running at Cardiff.
4: Yeah, with every week that passes, it's looking a better appointment, isn't it, Neil Harris? A good fit, a good person, I think, to follow Neil Warnock because he's different. In, <laughs> clearly, there's a, there's a huge age differential, so so that's a, a big change personality wise, but stylistically, he retains some of the same, you know, some of the same. Philosophies as Warnock, he he want he demands hard work. He he prides himself on, on good organization. So so it hasn't been a dramatic change, and and the players are responding. Yeah, I've I've always liked Neil Harris as as a player, and since he's gone into management, um, players seem to seem to want to work really hard for him. They're an industrious team. They're not they're not pretending to be anything other than that. They're not they're not got ideas above their station. And they will just always make it hard work, I think, for, for the opposition. And it will be the same against Preston this weekend. And I think Preston will have more of the ball. They'll probably dominate the game like they did at Luton. But on those turnovers, Cardiff Cardiff will explode into life. So, yeah, this is a really good game. Difficult, difficult one to call here. Sam, you mentioned earlier that, that Preston maybe
0: lack a number nine and, and that was well evidenced at, at Luton when when they had loads of chances to score, only managed the one goal and then got pegged back. Do you think that that profligacy in front of goal is going to be
3: what cost them a top six place at the end of the season? It could may well do. Um I think the the support is a little bit frustrated once they get their nose in front against a, a toil and Luton side that they play a little bit with the handbrake on and don't really go uh for it at that point. So maybe asking for trouble in the way that they sat back a little bit towards the end of that game. Yeah, I'll give you a little bit more on that. With with Maguire, Stockley, Nugent, there's options there, six goals between them this season. That tells a story. I've saw them recently at um, Fulham and and Barkhausen is a really talented player. He's played down the middle at times and at Fulham, I think just before the break, they should have been tuned up at half-time. But because they're wasteful in front of goal, Fulham come back to, to win that game. So... Yeah, I think that's that's been an issue with them throughout this campaign. They've got Billy Bowden coming back to fitness now, so he's another one that can play a variety of roles across the front. What about Scott Sinclair
4: not? up top, Sam?
3: I think he's a winger, and I think that the goal that he scored the other day is, a, is his trademark, really, the typical Scott Sinclair goal that he's been scoring plenty of up at Celtic, cutting him from that left-hand side and finishing with a Um I don't think he's looked particularly good since he's been here, but hopefully that'll kickstart his Preston career, but yeah, tight game I'd see at the weekend. Team separated by one goal and that's what I see happening again. I think it could be, you know, a Cardiff set piece or, or maybe one little bit of brilliance from one of those chaps in Preston colours that I just mentioned.
0: 12.30 Saturday at Deepdale for that one. Right, let's talk whole city, or as whole city analysis tweeted us to say, whole bloody city. Uh, We mentioned them last week, but it's gone from bad to worse since then. The Athletic have done a special investigation as to what's going on at the club, both now and for the last few years. As you may have noticed, they've been tumbling down the table of late. Their fans don't much like the owners and haven't done for some time. Having been made aware of the intention to publish the story, Hull put out a statement on Monday which included the sentence, It's a shame that whilst all in the football world should be pulling together to ensure the ongoing viability of football clubs and the game in general, this journalist appears to be seeking a scandal where none exists. Uh, They also published the email they'd received from The Athletic with details of the story as well as the club's response. Certain details were supposed to be redacted, but though they were in the PDF the club published, those black marks disappeared when the text was copied and pasted into words. Earlier on I spoke to the man who took the lead in writing the piece from The Athletic, it's Adam Crafton. Adam, first of all how long does a special investigation like this take? Presumably you've been working on it for a while now.
1: Yeah well we actually started working on this piece probably just well just before lockdown. Clearly, then we, I think we actually just cooled off it for a few weeks because, you know, with a piece like this, it always works better when football is happening, when supporters care more about their about their side, and then actually we just had sort of various conversations a couple of weeks before running the piece, and um, particularly last week that just made the piece hopefully far more compelling. So it it wasn't a sort of intentional let's drop it. The day before the season restarts, that was more just how it worked out. When we were at a point where we felt it was it was you know sufficient uh, to go with it.
0: So we get to to Monday of this week and Hull post their statement and and the email to them. And um, were you surprised that they would firstly respond in in such a public way, but also be so careless in in the way that they did it in terms of of not redacting certain details and that kind of thing?
1: Maybe um, I, I, all, all I can say you know, on behalf of myself and the, everyone else who was working on it, was we put a series of allegations to the club as we should on Friday. We gave them half half of Friday and then the full weekend to respond. There were, there were a few paragraphs that they omitted to, to publish. So for those who hadn't who haven't seen it, they decided to publish the email I sent them, but they didn't publish a couple of paragraphs where I said that if, you know, if the owner or press officer or the vice chairman want to speak at all, either officially or in an off the record way, then we're more than happy to do that. I think we'd also, if they'd have come back on Monday and said, you know, we'd like a day or two more to work through all the allegations, would have been probably open to that as well. As it transpired on Monday morning, we got an email and then about two minutes later, they broadcast what they broadcast on their website. So, you know, it's, We can only judge what we do and then write the piece and then it's up to whole city supporters really to make their judgment on that.
0: There's this strange relationship between Hassam Malam in particular and, and the city of Hull and the football club that seems to be at, at odds with, with one another in the fact that, as you point out, he's he's invested a lot of money into the city, let alone the football club, but he's he's starving the supporters of the club, people of the city, of of a successful club at the moment. Where does this disconnect come from? Is it is it just that he views business and, and his kind of philanthropic investments as, as totally separate things? Does, does he not see the, the way that they all join together?
1: If we take a, a bit of more of a long lens view of, of Hull over the last uh, nine or ten years, you know, the, the Alam family can justifiably argue they saved the club in around 2010-11 when they come in there was an eight, a winding up order at the time, big bills that they invested money into to pay off and probably in loans uh, they probably invested around £80 million into the club in that time. Of course, that's all being paid back to them over a period of time. And, you know, you can say during this period, I think they've been in the Premier League for three of those years. They've reached an FA Cup final. (laughs) That For for a club of Hull City's size, that that is a really good return, yet the supporters hugely resent the owners. And And it all goes back, it can be traced to two major events, one of which was the attempt to change the name from Hull City AFC to Hull Tigers, and the fallout that resulted from that which the the relationship has never recovered and then on top of that there was there's been other issues such as the removal of concession uh ticket prices for children or pensioners at home matches i think that explains a lot of the reasons why you know i think in 2017 against they beat liverpool 2-0 25000 were at the stadium then they played against preston and swansea this season and there's 9000 so i i think Uh, that breakdown of relationship of the relationship is so clear and and it's a huge shame because as you say in the local area something like 10 million pound poured into a local cancer facility big investment in the local university He, he himself studied at the local university this isn't a case of you know sometimes we you know we read stories about an owner who may be from you know a far flung place in the world and has no interest in the local area that is not the case here this is a guy who who has made the city his home that clearly has a local interest, but for for several reasons that relationship between the fan
0: base has 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 been destroyed. Plenty of pretty shocking revelations in the piece um, around the the quality of the training ground, things that happened when Steve Bruce was there. In particular, was it was there one element that surprised you the most when you uncovered it?
4: Yeah, I think the
1: toxicity of the relationship with Steve Bruce surprised me. Just because you know you, you look at Steve Bruce during his career and. He doesn't seem like someone when you know when you see him interviewed and you see him speaking that finds it very easy to fall out so dramatically with people. And and, look, and he has worked for demanding owners over over the years. I mean, look who he's working for now at Newcastle. So, you know, we tell a story in the piece about around five months before he left the club, there was a huge row that took place because a member of Bruce's sports science staff wanted to look after. A relative who was unwell and Bruce said to them yeah go, go on go home look after them and we'll give you paid leave the story goes that Ihab Alam the vice chair found out about this and said it wouldn't be possible that culminated in a huge row between Bruce and, and Alam that apparently culminated in Bruce being uh, fired pretty much on the spot before Hall then changed their mind and then he gets them promoted but all amongst this Alam was carrying out negotiations with the American investor Peter Greave, for a sale, and apparently also try to insert into the sale a condition that Bruce should be removed from his job should the takeover go ahead. That the takeover in the end never went ahead, but also the investor was very clear that he wouldn't be told who would be his manager uh, by the person selling the club, who we should say dismiss it as misleading and tittle tattle.
0: <laughs> tittle tattle, such a good phrase. And um, finally, Adam, what, what's the reaction? to the piece being from supporters from the comments that, that I read underneath it it seems that, that people are grateful that this has all been publicised
1: Yeah I mean I think that was the ironic thing when Hall made the statement they did yesterday and shared it on social media if you actually look at sort of hundreds of comments and I think it's far, it's far less a reflection you know on, on us or the, or the Athletic It's I think it's a reflection on just the, 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 dis, the mistrust now between the owners and the fan base that you know, it was very much seen as, well, a lot of information has been presented. And by the way, you know, by the way, when we send in allegations like this, you don't always you don't expect every you know, every single one to be ticked off by the club. You would expect a response to say, well, no, actually maybe that one's that one's not quite true and here's our version of of what happened. Um but there wasn't really any of that. And there was very much a sense from whole supporters reading it that, that yeah, they're grateful because I think they're sometimes there is this misconception that because they've had good times under the Alam family, that they should be therefore eternally grateful for everything you know, over, over the past eight or nine years and they should just get on with it and stop whinging. And I think you know, it's very clear that a huge proportion of the fan base is very, very unhappy with the situation there.
0: Adam Crafton of The Athletic there. And to read Adam's piece in full, you can head to the slash totally40 to claim 40% off a subscription. Woohoo. Uh, You feel for the fans in this, basically, don't you, Adrian? Up and down the leagues and and now, in all likelihood, heading down into the third tier by the looks of
4: things. Yeah, it's been a miserable time for the club and and they've voted with their feet, haven't they? I mean, you look around the KCOM, obviously, at the moment, it's completely empty. But even when fans were allowed in, Plenty stayed away. They're disillusioned, aren't they? They're wondering where the ambition of the ownership is, really. And when you read the piece, it was and the and the points that they made, especially in regards to to the salaries and the, and the wages, you basically they're just stripping stripping it right back, aren't they? All, all the big earners are going, and, and look, I think that's going to be commonplace among many teams across the EFL. That might not be that unusual, but but yeah, for Hull. Yeah, for Hull fans rather, they they probably want to see more of an effort to to keep their better players happy, and and that's not really been the case. Sam, we know you've got the inside uh, track at Charlton.
0: Johnny Jackson Lebo is assistant, friend of the show, and your good mate too. Did did they feel that it, they were getting Hull at the perfect time, given everything that was going on around the club in, in the build up to the game?
3: Yeah, I think they would have been relieved, probably going into the game, that it wasn't all. Going to be about Lyle Taylor and the other absentees in the Charlton side. That whole city had their own problems, and I probably have to apologise because I was probably a bit harsh on the likes of Irving last week, saying that they chucked the towel in. Well, you know, reading the piece, it seems that the terms that all the the players have been offered is a little bit of a joke, really. So, especially the captain and the and the vice captain. Uh, it sounded like they were pretty reasonable, especially what Eric Lee was was asking for. So, yeah. On the pitch, if macaulay Bon had been a little bit more sound in front of goal, that could have been a more convincing victory for, for Charlton. Very good value for the win. So you can only see one thing happening to Hull City at the moment, and that's a, a relegation. You look at the fixtures, Birmingham away, I suppose, is a winnable game considering that Pep Clotet's not going to be there next season. But next up, they come up, up against Neil Warnock in his second game. Who's gonna? They're going to be a completely a uh, different entity now with with him at the helm. And then come some really difficult fixtures. So tough to see where it ends for Hull, especially when you, you, you read about the type of players they're going to be trying to attract next season, the type of money that's going to be on offer, albeit it could be in the tier below. The place needs some good news, good news fast. Otherwise, um, it could be one of the stories, you know, of the teams dropping down the tiers like, uh, like a stone. Well, hopefully,
0: for whole City's sake, things will improve on the pitch soon enough, if not off it. Right, let's get some odds on the championship. Uh, Abby, you are primarily a producer, but also a reader out of odds compiled by the show's principal sponsor, William Hill. Please fulfil the second part of your remit now. Uh, what's it looking like in terms of promotion odds?
5: In the promotion, William Hill have got odds on for Brentford, Fulham, and Forest, so it is looking at that fourth spot in the in the playoff contention. And uh, Cardiff are the favourites at seven to four, even though Preston currently occupy that spot. Preston are the fifth favourites at two to one there, and it goes all the way down to QPR. Sam's beloved QPR at thirty three to one. But if you have your eye on Derby sneaking a spot in there, then they are twelve to one.
0: I do not. So they are the odds for the playoff places. What about relegation? We've been talking a lot about Hull. They must be odds on by now.
5: Indeed they are. Hurt. Them and Charlton have switched places as a result of uh, the weekend's result uh, going in Charlton's favour. Hull are now 4-6 to six to be relegated with Charlton 11-10 to 10, uh, and Luton and Barnsley still firmly uh, in the reckoning to be in the third tier next season.
0: Thanks, Abby. Right, up next. Who'd win in a fight between a cobbler and a Grecian? This is the Totally Football League show with Matt Davis Adams. League 2 headlines. The playoff final will see Exeter take on Northampton after two sensational second legs and two come from behind victories. Exeter overturning a 1-0 deficit after the first leg at Colchester to eventually triumph 3-1 AET on the night for a 3-2 AGG win. So that was dramatic. But then Northampton said, hold my cardboard out, as they only went and came from 2-0 down from their first leg to win 3-0 at Cheltenham at the Johnny Rock Stadium. 3-0 against a team whose defensive record this season is only better by Liverpool across the top four divisions. Uh, overall reflections on, on the the two semi semi-finals. then. Sam, this kind of felt to me like like proof that football can still provide drama, even if there's nobody about live to, um, to witness it firsthand.
3: Yeah, brilliant uh, games, first and foremost. The, the best games that there's been. Certainly in the, the second legs, that's because... The games ebbed and flowed. Teams had to go for it, had to really put the other team under pressure to get back into the ties. So, yeah, I thought they were, you know, really, really good viewing the pair of them. Yeah, Northampton result. I wouldn't say it was a freak, but nobody in the country would have seen that coming because of Cheltenham's wonderful defensive record. Only been beaten by solitary goal this season. They've not been beat by two clear goals at all. But the performance of Northampton, I thought was just... Exquisite from the first whistle. I actually felt the tight pitch at Waddon Road or whatever it used to be probably suited Northampton that they could sling those balls in, especially from Charlie Good's long throw. But I just felt the attitude was was brilliant. There was a period of play in the first half where I think McCormack went crunching into a tackle. You really heard it on the effects mic, and then the loose ball went free, and Jordan Turnbull came steaming in, and and that was the the attitude. The, the passing of Cheltenham in the midfield, which was very evident in the first game, the likes of um, Broom uh, and Thomas, they just couldn't get on the ball. So Northampton just disrupted them completely. And within that, you had some outstanding individual performances from the front two. I'd like to highlight first and foremost, Oliver was was superb. And Morton gave an all-action display and deservedly got two goals. So it sets it up brilliantly because Exeter were asked a lot of questions and I thought, they looked dead on their feet. So the resilience of both teams in that game, Colchester's to stay in there and get that goal back and Exeter to go on and win it, I was testament to both of those sides. I, I really thought that was a great game as well. Disappointment for, for Colchester and a, a rare error from,
0: from Dean Gherkin, a, a vastly experienced goalkeeper. We, we've rightly lavished praise on, on Exeter and, and even more so on Northampton, Clarkie, but... But what on earth happened to Cheltenham? Michael Duff looked like a haunted man by the end of the game. His team had been so solid in the first leg,
4: but across the season generally, they, they fell apart. Yeah, mental toughness, I think. It, that was the difference in, in this particular game. Northampton had it. They were granite-like in terms of their mindset. They They had their eye on the prize. They had a plan. And together as a unit, they imposed their will on Cheltenham who are a better team a better footballing team and that have been a stronger outfit over the course of the season and that's what can happen in football if if 11 men stick together and impose themselves like Northampton did you can you can achieve great things Cheltenham crumbled didn't they uh, under that pressure the weight of of, of holding on to the lead was was too much for them they started to make uh, odd choices choices that they haven't made all season defensively i mean will Boyle for for the all important winning goal it you know a bit of indecision there and he's, he's he pays a heavy heavy price and 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 duff as well panicked a bit i thought in the second half he, there was a number of sort of tactical changes to the formation he he started to to doubt himself a little bit. And and if there's one difference I think between the two managers, and I think they're both really good managers, um, was that Keith Curl never doubted himself or his players over the course of the 180 minutes. He he had complete trust in them to go out there and, and do it. And and I loved his bullishness after the first leg. He was so confident. And and his players played with that confidence. And I and also loved the fact that on a personal note he he, he played them the the documentary '89, with it when Arsenal needed to go go to Hanford and win by two clear goals, he showed them that documentary. And look, hey, Presto, it's it's inspired one of the best wins in the club's history. So, so I think Arsenal got an assist there.
0: <laughs> yeah, and as Abby <laughs> pointed out, maybe Mikel Arteta should show the Arsenal squad yeah. um, that documentary. <laughs> uh, let's hear from the man who masterminded that sensational turnaround. Now, earlier, I spoke to Keith Curl. Well, Keith, you've, you've had a day or two to let Monday's results sink in now. What's your overriding emotion? Is it pride or are you still exhausted?
6: I, I think enjoyed the drive home after the game and then the next two days have been... Focusing with my staff on uh, on Exeter, um, so yeah, we, we enjoyed uh, enjoyed the uh, the couple of hours after the game uh, against Cheltenham, and then, and, and then the focus is uh, we need to find weaknesses uh, in Exeter's and, and areas that we can exploit. And again, it's uh, very much a team effort. Now off the pitch, uh, regarding uh, the staff, giving them detailed information of, of what I want, uh, and then me impacting that onto the players. In
0: terms of Monday's game, obviously you've had a a long managerial career. In terms of an individual result, where, where does that rank? Because the game plan that you came with was executed to perfection. I'm, I'm guessing that's not something that, that happens every week.
6: No, no. Uh, again, I think a lot of people were trying to fill me with uh, with stats regarding... Uh, how good uh, Cheltenham were and how good their home record has been and their, their style of play and everything like that. I think what somebody said they play football the right way, uh, which, and I was like, wow, yeah, go on. Is there, is there, I've never won a game in the wrong way. So again, and I think very much what we decided internally was we need to focus on ourselves, what we're about, what our identity is individually, make sure we're on top of roles and responsibilities, and make sure we had that unity, make sure we had that cohesion with, with how we play. Um, and again, so I spent a lot of time on a training ground identifying patterns of play regain second second balls areas we want to hit and and we play the numbers game we get the ball forward and we get numbers into the box and it, it was identifying that to the players that but when it works it's one of those we're, we're on the front foot and, and we like to be a front foot team
0: you were you were bullish pre-match and obviously you knew what your plan was and, and had faith in it that that wasn't kind of false confidence to try and g up your players was it you, you genuinely believed with your staff that you could turn this around
6: yeah, definitely so. I think, I think, I think five times this season we've had uh, two goal leads uh, in games. Uh, four of them we've drawn, and one of them we've got beat. So, so we know all about a two nil lead, and goals change games. Uh, and that was the mindset that we set into the players. People might think that it was. Um, a bit of kidology, a bit of mind games. No, it wasn't. I honestly believe and I've, I've, I've been and played in a lot of games. I've coached and managed in a, in a lot of games and 2-0 is uh, a difficult lead to defend depending on when you get the goal. I remember being at Dar- We played when I was at QPR. We got promoted there. We were 2-0 down at Derby after 93 minutes uh, and we drew 2-2. So, so I think strange things can happen in football.
0: You mentioned about about Cheltenham and, and people saying they play the right way. Of course, that's subjective but but the hard facts can't be disputed and that is that only Liverpool had a better defensive record than them this season. I mean, that must have been slightly intimidating for you, was it?
6: Um... No, again, it's not intimidating. I don't, I don't think within, I don't think you can get intimidated on a football pitch, or certainly within a footballing arena. So it's, it's not a word I like to uh, like to band about. Uh, I think it's uh, we're very respectful, and we are, and so we did a lot of work on that their back unit uh, and how we had to dismantle that and where we could where we could cause them problems. And again, we, we are as a coaching group, we're very very respectful uh, of the opposition's strengths and weaknesses.
0: Exeter then in the final will, will be the op- opposition. You've, you've traded wins in League Two in, in the regular season. Where are their, their particular strengths, do you think?
6: I think they can score goals. I think they're organised. I, I think they've, uh, they've adopted a shape that, that, that gives them a platform for their match winners uh, to, go, uh, to go and perform. Nicky laws Williams um two players that on their day that they are match winners so yeah, again but likewise you know, we, we've got match winners in our team again uh, but again we, we will we uh, we' we'll probably uh, we we'll watch back the games that we've played against them we we'll watch back games against uh, against Colchester and again but again what we try to do is i detail the the games for the uh, for the staff to watch individually and they give me their notes back individually and i collate those and, and then and then and then we come up with a plan because it, again you Two people can watch a watch a game and pick up different things, and I think we've got a good uh, we've got a good blend uh, with attack with, with attacking mindsets in Colin West and, uh, and Ronnie Jeppson. We've got a defensive mindset myself, Simon Tracy uh, uh, and Dan Watson. Uh, we iron out the uh, the defensive element of what we need to be put in place and where we think the threats are going to come from. And then, like I say, Ronnie Jeppson, Colin West, uh, they identify weaknesses in the opposition. On, on an attacking note.
0: Finally, Keith, Wembley on Monday, one of the the biggest occasions of your career, your staff and your players too. But it is going to be bittersweet without any supporters in attendance. How do you prepare your players for that? It's one thing doing it at Sixfields, but it's another in a a 90,000 arena with just a couple of hundred people in it.
6: Again, I think we embrace it. We enjoy it. Being honest, I think it will take away uh, a lot of distractions for the players. Because I think uh, you know you're having a Wembley appearance and you uh, you can spend you can spend a couple of days sorting tickets out, uh, finding finding out where the seats are. But when, when players get there, all they want to do they want to see their loved ones and their family, uh, family and friends in the center so they're trying to identify them, uh, and that can suddenly then be a, a slight distraction. I think now you go in there and it's, it's a game of football, yeah, in a fantastic stadium, the, the home of football in the uh, or English football. Uh, but again, very very quickly it will become a changing room, a walk to the pitch side, and then as soon as you the white line is one of those game-on and yeah, Now we go going to work.
0: Keith, we wish you all the best for Monday. Thanks so much for talking to us today.
6: It's a pleasure. Thanks very much.
0: Keith Curl, the Northampton town gaffer there. So he's going, going to be going to Wembley on Monday. His side facing an Exeter team who are in the playoff final for the Third time in four years. Uh, They didn't win any of the previous two. Matthew Lomas has been on. He's tweeted us to ask, is it actually a good thing for a club the size of Exeter City to be promoted given the added costs of operating at a higher level and the perilous financial situation for all clubs? Going into next season, Sam, Sam, they're your old team. Presumably, you always want to be a league higher if you can be, for for the status of the club and and for the benefit of the players and staff and supporters too. But there are additional additional factors to take into account as well, I suppose.
3: Yeah, and and Julian Tag at X has been quite vocal about you know these clubs having to spend extra money taking the players off furlough and. Getting them ready for this this playoff schedule, um, so I think it's hit Exeter hard. I remember them having a difficult time in League One, probably last time around. I don't know if that was down to finances, but that step up uh, proved too difficult for Paul Tisdale's then side. I think the academy is so good at Exeter that it will mean promotion for for a number of these players and more regular game time for some of the lads we saw play a part in the, in the playoffs, and not only from the start but off the bench. Seymour, I think, was another. Uh, academy graduate that came on in extra time so yeah I, I think you'd never say never when it comes to promotion it's going to be a difficult game it's going to be a difficult game and that would have taken a lot out of them those those victories that victory over over Colchester but I think it's it's beautifully poised I think you've got the experience of some of the Exeter players having been there before in recent times I think they'll have that over Northampton but Northampton will be on a Ridiculous high um, after such a you know once in a kind of career performance that will be for some of those lads. They probably won't get to those heights again or feel that sensation that they would have experienced even without the crowd. So um, yeah, it's it's finely poised. But I'd have to go with my um, my more recent former club in Exeter to just nick that one.
4: I was going to say lest we lest we forget it's the Sand Park in Derby. Who are you backing then, Adrian? <laughs> it's a hard one. I think that. Exeter have got some real standout individuals I think Randall Williams I love the duel by the way between Randall Williams and Cohen Bramall over the two legs I thought that was that was good to watch too that got into to my team of, the, team of the season in League 2 so Randall Williams is a star Nicky Law I think is a fantastic player um, in midfield I, th- I think Exeter may be slightly stronger you got Collins in there and um Taylor as well but but and Ryan Bowman I, I really like him I've been singing his praises all season didn't get many chances over the course of the the two legs but the one that he got when it mattered most when he when he was bearing down on goal how cool was he Sam that was an ice cold finish wasn't it with his left foot in in you know, right in the corner I think that that spoke volumes for 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 his quality, um, but yeah, so extra to have the individuals, but Northampton, as, as they've shown, can beat teams like that if 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 they impose themselves on them. And last time they met in February, Northampton two 0 brushed the Grecians aside. But yeah, you, I don't know what you think about Bowman. That was that was class for me that moment.
3: I I just thought it was fascinating seeing. I think his, his options were diminished because I don't think Martin was available. He's a bit of a runner down the sides. But to go with the two big front men, I thought, was a real statement of intent. And watching the first five, ten minutes, it, it was almost Northampton-esque, the way Exeter set up. The three defenders were going boom to the two big strikers, putting balls into the box from from Williams and Nicky Law, who makes brilliant runs, by the way, in behind strikers. His position, actually, his average position is more advanced than the two strikers when you look on the, the heat map after the game. So he's very intelligent with Williams on the right. And yeah, I just thought that was interesting. I thought it was interesting because of Colchester and no drinking violence. They've got some big, strong boys and uh, Bowman and Fisher really put them under pressure. But as for the finish... I was surprised a big lump like that, at that stage of the game, had the quality uh, and the ability to execute that technique when your legs are heavy. He'd done a lot of running, competed for a lot of balls aerially. I thought it was a brilliant finish.
0: Happy i asked the chaps. What about William Hill? Who do they, who do they think are the favourites for the final?"
5: So if you go to the outrights, they have them both at 17 to 20 to be promoted, which obviously cannot work. But if you go to the match stats themselves, then we see that Northampton are at 9 to 5 and Exeter are the slight favourites at 13 to 8, and that's after 90 minutes. So uh, in short, TLDR, it's tight.
0: (laughs) Right, that's just about it for this week's show. Save, of course, for the never superfluous closing chat. Simple one on this hot baking day. Clarky, what's your ice cream of choice? The, uh, the condition is it must be served on a stick.
4: <laughs> on a stick well, Actually, no, I'm gonna change that. You can, have a, you can have a cornet as well, but nothing in well, a tub. Something portable. No, I, I would always choose a 99. Always. Um, with, with the Sauces, flake? flake? Uh, no, 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 not a sauce. No, that's that, that's that that's that's not on for me. You've got to go classic. And, um, and and just have the, have the flake in there. But if you're going for something on a stick, a bit controversial, but I still like a feast. I still like a feast. All these years on from my first feast, I, I still enjoyed them as much as ever.
3: Not sure about the chocolate in a feast personally. Sam? That's why me and Clarky are like peas and carrots, feast all day long. And a quick anecdote, I was on Twickenham Green with a friend last week no toilet facilities, so I'd nipped home five minute walk away he'd gone and ordered me an ice cream while he was getting them in told the ice cream man to keep it behind the jump for my imminent return when I returned turning the corner the music went on off the ice cream van went into the horizon <laughs> I got knocked by an ice cream van
0: heartbreak <laughs> uh, for the record I prefer a Solero uh, so there you go Thanks to Sam and Adrian for joining me as ever and to our guests and to you, listener. We'll catch up again next week. You've been listening to The Totally Football League Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Keep up to date with everything across our Totally Football network at The Totally Show on Twitter and make sure you check out our brand new website too, thetotallyfootballshow.com. Muddy Knees
4: Media.